Blog Talk Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another special edition of the Feuerstein's Fire American Soccer Show as we get ready to discuss the news that happened on Thursday evening in the middle of the CONCACAF Nations League semifinals between the United States and Mexico as U.S. soccer rehires Greg Berhalter as the head coach of the U.S. men's national team. Joining me to discuss this situation, my colleagues, of course, from World Soccer Talk, Carter Krishnire and Robert Hay, joining me to talk about this. And, Kardik, as I go to you first, when you heard the news that Greg Berhalter was returning to the U.S. men's national team as the head coach, were you just as shocked as everyone else was when that news came out over in Las Vegas at Allegiant Stadium? Um, full confession, I, I was asleep. So I uh, found out the next morning. Uh, but but uh, I was not shocked. I, I thought it was a fait accompli uh, the, pre, the, the few days uh, prior when we learned uh, Greg Berhalter had pulled out of the running for the Club America job. Uh, uh, when we learned, uh, first off, he was the front runner for the Club America job, it looked like at one point. Uh, and then when we also uh, heard cool speculation on him, perhaps going to Sparta Rotterdam, I, I, I figured, okay, uh, he's going to be back as the U.S. coach. But the sloppiness in actually it, it, it being leaked, and I, I believe, and, and uh, maybe this is a subject of conversation tonight, maybe it's not. I believe it was a um, you know, credit to, to, to Paul Tenorio and the Athletic. They do a great job, but I think this was a story that was pretty much given to them, and it was given to them at a strange time. Uh, maybe if it had been given to them Monday morning after uh, – well, I, mean, I guess we ended up having the announcement Friday. But the timing was very odd is what I'm trying to say. You, you, you release it in the middle of a match where you have an interim manager – Manage, managing you in ostensibly what is a big match against your, your biggest rivals, Mexico, uh, in, in a uh, competitive match. It wasn't a friendly, right? It was the Nations League. So the whole thing was quite, um, quite bizarre. The handling of it was quite bizarre. And I have to say, I think that this, again, you know, there are two different things we're discussing here, and, I, and, I, and maybe this is what we'll get into tonight with, with you and Robert. Um, we're talking about the merits of the Burhalter hire. That is a separate discussion from the process by which Burhalter was hired the first time and the process by which uh, this uh, so-called global search that Matt Crocker has, has uh, talked about, has gone on record saying, and he went on record saying it took place without restrictions, that they, there were no restrictions on who they could talk to when they were uh, coaches they weren't just restricted to coaches who were not on, under contract, who were, who were free, who were not contracted to any, any club or national team. So the, uh, and it was based on data and analytics and 
mental factors. So they have put all this out there publicly. So that is a separate discussion from the actual uh, merits of Burhalter's hiring. And I think uh, we have to keep in mind there are two separate discussions happening here, uh, both of which we have to have serious questions and, and, and critique, but they're two separate things. And uh, I, I, I just think that even the timing of this was incredibly sloppy and uh, maybe smacked a, a degree of arrogance. Robert, obviously, you know, during the match through social media, through Twitter mostly, the news was coming out from Paul Tenorio from The Athletic, as Cardick said, and just to basically deviate away from the game. The, 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 the matter at hand was that night, the United States is in the semifinals of the CONCACAF Nations League. They're taking on their biggest rivals. And even though the U.S. did a masterful job of just taking out Mexico and destroying them, frustrating them. This was looming in the back of everyone's mind. What in the hell was going on here? And we just, I just couldn't believe the, the, I I don't want to say it's in, you know, the disrespectfulness of it, but the truth is, look, a job had to be done and reporters like, Cardick, myself, you as well, you know, we, we have to do our jobs to report of what's being broken. And it's just one of those moments where, why now? I guess we don't have Robert. Nope. Robert, are you there? I guess Robert is not there, so I guess we'll go back to Cardiac right now. Um, yep, we just lost Robert, so he'll come back. Uh, but anyway, Cardiac, um, as Robert's trying to uh, call back in, um, you know, when, when you remember the first time that, okay, Robert's back in, and we'll get to Robert. I want him to answer that question if you heard me. Robert, were you able to hear that question or no? Yes, actually, and um, I could hear you all, and, and uh, I'm glad to be on. But um, I am also glad I want to just start by saying I'm glad I wasn't the only one that slept through the match. I had a early morning travel and planned on catching the highlights um, after my travel, but, boy, did that get derailed. Um, you, know, I, 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 the, you know, I wasn't surprised by the process um, because, you know, and the way that this was handled, because honestly, and we'll get into this a little bit more, the entire hiring process, the entire approach to this World Cup has been – shambolic, kind of a joke, um, disrespectful, you know, use any number of adjectives. So the fact that it's, you know, you're, you're in a match in a you know, semifinal of an important, you know, what U.S. soccer considers an important tournament, what we consider an important tournament, against your arch rival, it's a passionate match, the U.S. is playing well, all kinds of great storylines. I mean, think of the, the storylines that are coming out of this match. You have a, a second interim coach, you know, U.S. soccer taking a lot of flack for that, and the man is just doing a great job managing these players are doing a great job. We hadn't gotten to the, the really unfortunate stuff in the second half, but, you know, you could tell that this was the U.S. night, that, you know, and it gets stomped on by, you know, maybe it wasn't a leak, but I think we've been in this business long enough to know that, like, there's ways to delay these news, this news. Like, it doesn't have to come out in the first half of a major match. It can come out later. And so, you know, basically the storyline takes over, and this great performance by the U.S. doesn't get buried necessarily, but 
you know, it's overshadowed by this. And this is kind of, like I said, symbolic of this entire process. It's this, either it's hubris um, to the point of extreme or it's incompetence to the point of extreme where you don't do the basics of unveiling your head coach, which is, as anybody in any sport will tell you, wait for the downtime, wait for the quiet time, let the current, you know, good news pass and then launch it. And instead they just decided to pile everything on Maybe they thought it was a news dump and it would get forgotten if they thought that it was crazy. But, you know, it was just, I think, indicative of how this entire process has gone on. And I'm, I'm sure we'll get into this in, in you know, the show, but I wasn't shocked at all. And I think the reactions weren't surprising. Nothing was surprising about this, including the fact that he was hired and announced. And I think uh, I agree with Kardec 100%. There's two different conversations here. One, the merits of the hire. And number two, the way the hire was done. And, I, you know, I have very different feelings on both – well, somewhat different feelings on both of them. And I'm looking forward to getting, getting into it because I think there's some really, really upsetting things that can be said about um, this entire process and what it might portend for 2026 and beyond for the men's side. Carter, I wanted to go back to my question was the first time that they hired Greg Berhalter – they claimed to go through a whole hiring process, finding the right people, which they never did. They claimed that, oh, well, they did interview Oscar Pereja at the time, was managing a different club. He said, I was never asked. They kept Dave Sarikin on for such a long period of time until they let Greg Berhalter's run with the Columbus crew end in the playoffs, which wasted the time to get to the you know the new world cup cycle for qatar and now oh thierry Henry's name gets gets thrown out patrick vieira's name gets thrown out jesse marsh's name gets thrown out and you're just thinking to yourself okay you know there that's an upgrade but then it goes right back to burhalter again again i I, I, I mean, I don't understand why all of a sudden these are the names of people that get thrown out there and they all of a sudden come out of the blue and say, nope, Greg's our guy. He's the one that passed all these tests that, you know, these metrics that we have to hire the head coach actually came from Burhalter himself before we even picked him to bring him back. Yeah, and, and I have to tell you, I, um, you know, I, I, I know a little bit about Matt Crocker from his time at Southampton and his time with the English FA. This doesn't really surprise me. This is why I think that there are, again, there are two separate discussions here, as, as both Robert and I have alluded to. And one of the things about the discussion is that we have a set of fans who hate Greg Berhalter, who don't care if he wins the World Cup, they'll criticize him, and they want a foreign manager. Some of those same people were lauding the hiring of Matt Crocker because he's a foreigner and because he's English and because he has Premier League experience and, and English FA experience. What I knew about the guy, this actually kind of fits in, in, into the pattern and, and some of the decisions he's made when he's actually had decision-making responsibility, which he did not always have uh, when he was with the English FA. He did at Southampton. Um, and the thing that uh, – is pretty clear to me is that they have come up with a song and dance, a cover story to justify something that I think they were probably determined to do six months ago, even before Crocker was formally on the job. Um, 
the the bottom line is the the exit of Ernie Stewart, the exit of um, of Brian McBride. That indicated to me there would be potentially a doubling down. That's the way I read it. I know others thought again because there's some bias among the critics. And it's a shame because I'm a, I'm a critic of U.S. soccer. I'm a known critic of U.S. soccer. But some of the elements within the, uh, the, the community of U.S. soccer critics uh, that are prominent on Twitter and on YouTube uh, are just very kind of narrative-based and, and based things on nationality. And I, I think they just they, they, they sometimes miss, miss, miss the point. I did think Stewart and McBride going – made it more likely that Burhalter would be back, and I was correct in that. Uh, so they just made uh, – they just went through the formalities of what they were going to do six months ago. And what makes it worse is they have this cover story. They have this cover story about they, – they evaluated the mentality and the, uh, um, the resumes and, and, and the culture and all of these buzzwords Crocker threw out there on Friday – once the hiring, the rehiring was made official again, and uh, I, I don't believe. I mean, you just said a, said a, said, a, said someone's name, Patrick Vieira. I don't think anyone could com- compare Patrick Vieira and Greg Berhalter objectively and hire Greg Berhalter. I mean, let's just be honest about it, okay? So I, I think that these names may have been floated strategically by leakers: Vieira, Henri, Marsh. Um, you know, I, I, I have. My own sources, I will probably get to the bottom of uh, at least the Marsh end of this at some point, you know, whether Jesse was seriously considered, whether he, um, he wanted the job. I don't know the answer to either of those two things right now. Um, but I do think uh, from knowing Jesse Marsh a little bit, he has had concerns about how the Federation has been run in the past and has had concerns about uh, the uh, structure of the game in this country. So I, I do think there is a possibility that he uh, privately bowed out. I, I, I'm not sure. Uh, there is also the possibility that he wanted the job badly and uh, uh, was, uh, was not given a fair opportunity to take the job, uh, to get the job. But um, the bottom line is I do not think – we can talk about the merits of the Burhalter being rehired. I thought he did a pretty good job in his first stint. Uh, although I was never a fan of his hiring in the first place, but I, I objectively, I think he did a decent job, but I do not think the cover story that they had given us uh, adds up. I do think this hiring was going to, w- would have been made in January if they could have gotten away with it. And uh, they rearranged the deck chairs on, on, on uh, the, uh, the ship, so to speak, brought in Matt Crocker. They brought in, uh, a new, uh, whose name is escaping me, a new, new secretary general, new, new uh, person re- replacing Will Wilson. Uh, uh, and those, um, those guys now look like they've made the decision. But the fact that Stewart and McBride left, my information is, guys, by the way, and it's, I'll leave on this point, my information is that McBride had decided to leave before the World Cup that the situation was kind of untenable internally and he was going to leave. And I, I don't know. Uh, I don't, I, I don't know if that's the case with Ernie Stewart, but I do suspect that was the case with Ernie Stewart also. Whereas Burhalter, I think the whole time was positioning himself politically to hang on to the job and other things that were going on on the outside. Oh, there might be clubs in Europe interested in me. Uh, and then later, more recently, Club America, Sparta, Rotterdam, those were political moves in case 
um, he didn't get the job again. Just, you know, fall back like you have a safety school when you apply to college. And uh, then you could say, oh, you know, I really didn't want to come back. But I, I just think this was always in the cards, honestly. I don't trust U.S. soccer. No, I don't trust them either. And, you know, Robert, once again, when you see Matt Crocker going on morning footy on CBS Sports Galazzo Network, when you see him at the dais introducing Greg Berhalter, I mean, it's two different things night and day. First of all, you see him on morning footy as a competent person that is excited about taking over the position as the new sporting director of U.S. soccer. He's got a plan. He's got an idea. He looks strong. He looks like that, you know, he's ready to lead this federation and the sporting department of finding a new head coach. And then you get to him on the dais, and it looks like he's memorizing a script for what he has to say what were the positives he needs to say about Greg Berhalter, why this was such a good hiring, why this fits for everyone involved, why this, why that. It's just the absolute same song and dance routine that I that you have seen, Cardiac has seen, I have seen, all of us have seen, coming out of Chicago from Soccer House every damn time. If they're not going to be honest with us on who they want to hire as the head coach for the U.S. men's national team, then what's the point of running or doing a a coaching search to actually get the right guy for the right job? Well, I mean, you know, Daniel, I mean, obviously this was uh, his decision. He had a major role in the decision. That's why he was it looked like he was reading off a teleprompter on a press conference that was called right after the U.S. you know Mexico match and right in the middle of you know the U.S. is um, winning the Concacaf Nations League. I mean that's totally when you do these things. It makes perfect sense in terms of a a press and and I'm being 100% sarcastic if anybody can't get it. I mean you know I, I'm surprised that, that he didn't show up you know like in, in a sweat tracksuit because that's probably what he had to fly him out to a press conference and put him in front of cameras. I mean, it's it's symbolic of the whole process, just being kind of symbolic. And, you know, one of the things I, I want to touch on is, um, you know, this conversation about the search is there was a lot of talk about the search firms and, and things like that. And there was a, a firm that was brought on to um, review resumes, and the, the, the com- comment was made, well, you know, we collect resumes and really apply metrics and figure out who are the candidates. Um, this is something I've touched on in other places, but, um, you know, if you're, if you're really serious about a search, you bring in a search firm as kind of a, a plausible deniability um, source. So you bring in a search firm as a third party to do the dirty work for you, the hard work for you, to not only collect the resumes and, you know, weed out candidates, but also recommend candidates and be that first point of contact. So that way, if, you know, you, Patrick Beer as a candidate, for example, the search firm's talking to his agent, his team, maybe even the coach himself. And then when the reporter puts a microphone in his face and says, hey, you know, have you talked to U.S. soccer? The, no, I haven't. Have you all talked to Patrick Barrett? No, we haven't. You know, there, there's a, a way to set up a process where there's plausible deniability until it makes sense for you to talk to this person. What we've heard so far, and this may change, and that's indicative in and of itself, is the process was they had a, a firm, they hired a firm, or I think hired this firm, to collect resumes, and then they put their own metrics against it. 
And if there is a concern about it's an absolute waste of money and a kind of a why even bring in this process, just do it yourself or, you know, so everything about this has been just just this this lack of, of efficiency, lack of um, using best practice in the management space, lack of like actually going out and trying to find something that fits. And, you know, we, we've talked about this before, Daniel, a number of times, it's, you know, it's June 20th, 2023, we've wasted a year, essentially, on this process. I mean, we, we now, I guess, technically have the team in place that will help the men's team um, try to, I guess, win the World Cup. I, that's, again, not a stated goal. It should be a stated goal. But, you know, we've wasted essentially a year on this. And this is valuable time to not only identify the players, because guess what? We are going to have to identify the players identify the players, identify what needs to be done in order to actually try and, and advance in, in the World Cup. And since this is, again, probably the best chance we're going to have in a long time to actually um, make a run at the World Cup, as crazy as that sounds. So it's just wasted time. It's wasted energy. And the U.S. Soccer Federation, again, wasting money, energy, and so forth on a process that should be um, kind of straightforward. It's not brain surgery to hire a manager, you know, even for a national team. There's candidates out there. There's candidates that want this job. Do the process right, and so that way there will always be critics, but at least you can stand up and defend yourself and make sense of what your defense is. You know, ever since Sunil Gulati stepped down as president of U.S. soccer, and, and look, we all know the title is really meaningless at U.S. soccer to be the president, but the truth of the matter is Sunil Gulati was respected by everybody in the board of directors at U.S. soccer. He was respected. Everyone knew how knowledgeable he is. Okay, he's made some missteps here and there. We all know the situation with uh, what happened with the women's uh, players on all the NWSL clubs, that what's been going on. And, you know, with the whole equal pay uh, situation that was not being done inside U.S. soccer, fine. But the truth of the matter is, is that he's been in this business for so many years. And then ever since he stepped down... U.S. soccer has just been uh, a laughingstock internally from what we have seen, unless, you know, unless you are a, uh, a media person who claims, oh, U.S. soccer knows what they're doing. We'll get to that in a moment. But still, though, you know, I know, Robert knows. And every sane, regular person who has common sense can see this, that U.S. soccer intentionally – is now becoming a clown show because they don't know how to do either a proper coaching search or to inform us this is the guy we're hiring and we don't care what you say. Yeah, look, uh, the, the, uh, the, there's been a certain loss of professionalism with uh, 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 Samuel Gulati uh, leaving and uh, he is now doing other things in football, uh, including with UEFA. And uh, Dan Flynn, I, I want to mention actually a, a couple of people that left. Dan Flynn, who uh, was the Secretary General for years, and then Brian Ramiti, who was uh, let go uh, by um, Cindy Parlo-Cone, a really important uh, guy behind the scenes. Uh, there were, I guess, some complaints his salary was too high, but I, I think he was a, a very competent person, competent administrator in a, uh, in a governance structure. Because remember, U.S. soccer is, again, uh, they are – uh, they don't just govern the national teams. I mean, this is another problem with, I think, a lot of U.S. men's national team fans. 
uh, that that exploded about this Burhalter hiring. Uh, there are uh, there are umpty number of reasons to be unhappy with U.S. soccer, uh, as as uh, the three of us know. But a lot of these U.S. men's national team fans they don't even realize that, that the function of U.S. soccer uh, things as basic as registering players and, and assigning, refer, assigning referees, well, that, that's actually done outside of U.S. soccer now, but some of the basic things um, have become more difficult since Sunil Galati left and Dan Flynn left and, and Brian Ramiti left. And in terms of the, um, the level of um, competence, Robert mentioned organizationally, uh, some very, very important points. I hope everybody who's listening to this, uh, if you're listening to this on podcast, go back and, and rewind to what Robert just said a few, few minutes ago. There are a number of things in an organization, if you want to have an efficient search, a proper job search um, that you do, that U.S. soccer hasn't done the last two times they've hired a new men's national team manager. Uh, and uh, there is also uh, an amateurish way in which they, they released this. And a um, couple other points here. I, I don't know why current U.S. national team players were uh, involved in this decision-making process, why they were talked to when, in fact, look, there was a player pool of 75 guys or something that the U.S. could theoretically select for a major tournament, okay? That's how deep the player pool has gotten, which is a positive thing. Now, when you go to the top 20 or 25 players or how many players were talked to in this process, the guys who were actually selected for the last couple of tournaments by this manager, of course they're going to say, I want this guy rehired. I don't want to risk a Jesse Marsh coming in or a Patrick Vieira coming in or uh, if those two, two guys were even indeed candidates. We don't know. Uh, again, uh, we've heard speculation, but we don't know. Of course, uh, Timmy Weah is going to say, yeah, I love Greg Verhalter because he picked him for the World Cup and, and he started in the World Cup. Of course, Christian Pulisic, who has uh, uh, not had a, a, a particularly good time of it in club football the last few years, and there are multiple reasons for this. It's not uh, – he, 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 there are things in his game he needs to improve. There are things in his fitness regimen he needs to improve. But he's had a good time of it with the national team. So, of course, he's going to want some continuity with the manager. So – you don't do that. And I, I have to say, this is a mistake U.S. soccer has made on the women's side also in choosing coaches, in sacking coaches. When Tom Sermani was sacked, uh, it all looked good and well after the fact because Jill Ellis won the, won the World Cup in 2015. But that was due to the players. I think Vlatko is in the job right now because he has the favor of the players, right, the more senior players. So this is not the way other federations operate. And real quickly – I want to I look at this U.S. soccer board uh, that you talked about. Because Cindy Parlocone, um, there has been regression in the way U.S. soccer operates with her uh, as the president of U.S. soccer compared to Sunil Gulati. There is a reason why a number of uh, stakeholders in the game, particularly stakeholders in youth soccer, after Carlos Cordero was forced to resign in, dis in, in disgrace in 2020, got together in 2022 and said, you know what? We'd like Cordero to be president again because things have been run so poorly since Cordero left. And quite frankly, if it hadn't been for the Athletes Council, which has basically a weighted vote, Cordero would be back as president. It was very close, and among actual people who were voting, he probably got more votes. Uh, Bill Taylor is uh, the vice chair. He's someone um, with uh, um, you know, an extensive professional background, but not much of an administrative background. J.T. Baston is the new CEO. That, that's the name I forgot earlier. A guy, again, 
that does not have uh, the, the sort of level of experience that his predecessor, Will Wilson, had, and, and definitely Will Wilson's predecessor, um, Dan Flynn, had. Uh, this is, these, are your, these are your leaders. And even when you look at the U.S. soccer board, you have a lot of people who are in their first terms, a lot of former players, Lori Lindsay's on there, Whitney Ingen's on there. She, she also went to the University of North Carolina, which is the same university that, um, that Cindy Parlacone went to, the same university that, um, that uh, uh, Danielle and Claudio, uh, Danielle and uh, Danielle Reyna went to, Claudio Reyna went to Virginia, and the same uh, university that uh, both the Burhalters went to. Um, so there's kind of a little axis that runs through um, through through uh, the triangle area of North Carolina. Danielle Slayton, she obviously is from that area also, or has ties to that area. She's on, on the U.S. soccer board. It's a very inexperienced board. And um, last thing I'll say about this is, Daniel, you and I did a show many years ago where I complained on air that Sunil Gulati was too arbitrary in his decision-making. Sunil Gulati would make a decision, or he'd get Don Garber on the phone, or, and, and he'd get Dan Flynn in the room, and the three of them would make a decision. And then the next board meeting a month later, two months later, Sunil would say, hey, we've done this. We're executing this. I'm just letting you know. That's not the way a nonprofit is supposed to work, right, legally. That is not the way U.S. soccer should have worked, and there were a lot of people on the board that were beginning to get antsy about Galati's method of uh, administration, his method of governance. But things worked better in in that process. Things worked better when you had someone like Sunil, who was very respected, and uh, uh, I had my disagreements with him, but quite frankly, he knew what he was doing. He knew the game. Um, And you have someone like Dan Flynn flanking him also, I had disagreements with him, but he knew the game he, and, and knew the ins and outs of, of, of soccer in this country making decisions rather than a board that's very inexperienced, that seems to have been stacked with, with, uh, with company men and women, and uh, it, it's just not a good situation. No. No, it's not a good situation. It's an it's, it's absolutely deplorable situation. And going to uh, Mr. Batson here, Robert, you know, apparently, you know, there are some people that were saying the reason why they're not able to hire a top-notch head coach, you know, especially from Europe, or, you know, the ideas of maybe bring over someone like Jose Mourinho over who's demanding $10 million a year to be the head coach, uh, of whether it be a club side or even a uh, uh, a national team side, we don't know what the price would be for him if he would be the national team manager for his native Portugal. Um, I don't know what that would entail. But, you know, the question to C.T. Batson was, you know, is there an issue with finances or in the budget of U.S. soccer, you know, to maybe bring over someone like Mourinho? And he goes off and says, no, we don't have any budget issues whatsoever. We have enough money to hire whatever manager we wanted to come over if it costed uh, $10 million to get someone like Jose Mourinho to be the head coach of our U.S. men's national team, then we have the money to do so. I, I don't know what goes on. I, I'm not a math major. I mean, I shouldn't say I'm not a math major. I, mean, I know my math, but I'm not a banker. You know, I, I, don't, I don't work for the IRS. I, I don't know what the finances are at U.S. soccer, but, I mean, regardless of that, I mean, is that really – the biggest question mark that we have to worry about now, the finances 
of who to bring over to become the head coach of the national team because the uh, the current women's national team head coach is not making the amount of money that you know he should be making than what Burhalter should be making. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I don't know anymore about you know what the finances are at U.S. Soccer because they're not going to say anything. They're going to keep that all hush hush. So yeah, let me let me delve into a little bit about what what you're going to see with the finances. Um, and so with any nonprofit organization, um, and, and this is from my day job where I work in nonprofit organizations, um, there's going to be a lag in terms of finding out exactly what the pay for the coaches are going to be, because we're going to probably safely assume Greg Berhalter and Andonofsky are, are two of the highest paid employees at U.S. soccer. So the U.S. soccer tax um, year ends, I believe at the end of March. And so It'll probably be 2024, more likely 2025, before you really know what the base salary for each of these coaches are. So we won't know any reported finances um, for this year for at least another year, two years. It's, that's just the way the tax world works for nonprofit organizations and, and the for-profit world, but especially for the nonprofit world. Um, and so there will be a lag on this, and uh, we'll find out eventually uh, general numbers, but um, there will be a lag. You know, with the World Cup coming to the U.S. in three years, um, I know three years is a long way away. And, and as Kardik mentioned, um, there's, I mean, the U.S. Soccer Federation is taking a hammering from the, the various lawsuits they've stupidly fought and stupidly gotten themselves dragged into. Um, but one thing we also have to remember is, you know, the 2020 to 2021, 2022 year where with the global pandemic, that hurt um, any number of, I mean, it hurt U.S. soccer, it hurt a lot of us, a lot of organizations in terms of revenue. I mean, there wasn't games, there wasn't tournaments, there wasn't all the stuff that brings in, um, you know, money, sponsorships, things like that. And so undoubtedly the organization has taken a, a hit from that just like others have. And we know they applied for uh, federal relief just like other organizations of their size have. And, you know, that's the smart thing to do. But I think all of these things, the lawsuits, the COVID years, um, you know, the, the hiring decisions, the bad hiring decisions, the changes – um, have to have had an impact on, and you know, and I should also mention, you know, we don't know what the fundraising looks like for the C3 side of it, um, with especially with the what happened on the women's side and the abuse on the women's side. Um, we don't know yet what the impact of all of that is, but there, it has to have had an impact of some sort on the organization for the past few years. That being said, you have a, like I said, a World Cup coming up in three years. There are ways to get the person that you want. Within reason. So if there was a manager in Europe that they wanted and that pay was a little bit higher than you had on your – somewhat higher than you had on your your, um, your ledger before you, you started this process, you could probably structure something where bonus payout, something like that. You could restructure some contracts within the organization, rely more heavily on bonuses. There's a million different ways to make it work. And I would be shocked if the difference – if this was the case, if they actually did go to a manager in Europe and said, like, hey, we'd like to think about hiring you, and the manager said, that's great, there's a million dollars more than I, you're willing to offer that I want to make, that they couldn't make something work. Ten million, yes. A million, I would be shocked if they couldn't figure out something to make make it work. So that, if that was the case, in reality, I don't think it was, they're idiots for doing that. You know, If they had a good manager in mind and the manager said, I want to make two million versus the million you're offering, and they're like, yeah, no thanks, then you've got a world cup coming. You're going to make lots of money marketing and, and so on and so forth. Like there's money coming into your coffers. You can make it work. So, um, you know, there might be other reasons why there's a payroll structure, 
but I, I just can't believe that with this job, with you hosting the World Cup in three years, that, you know, you couldn't make it work. Now, if the World Cup were in New Zealand and Australia, for example, in 2026, your TV revenue might be less. There wouldn't be the, the necessarily the same marketing and so on and so forth. I can understand a financial hit. But, man, you're going to have the world coming to this country soon. You're going you're gonna to be making money. And even from the past few years of the decisions you've made, both the stupidity that was your fault and the things that happened to you, like th- there will be money made. So there should not be an excuse for salary um, being a reason why you can go out and hire somebody. And I suspect that it's really not. If this was just a, like Cardick's been saying, you know, they wanted to hire Greg Berhalter and, you know, that was what's going to happen at some point. You know, Cardick, if, uh, you know, it's, it's still just so shambolic of what's been going on over there at Soccer House. It, it's just been a, a head hitting experience. Like you're banging your own head against the wall you can't believe this is going on again and again and again that they're hiring Greg Berhalter who okay look he did a decent job could have been better it could have been worse the problem is tactics wise I think Greg Berhalter is uh, a little inept on the international stage but that's just how I that's just my opinion that's just how I feel But let's also look at what he did during that leadership conference, because before that happened, he had to discipline Gio Reyna for his poor attitude. Yes, I understand. Reyna did not like the news that he wasn't going to be used that much because basically due to the injuries he was suffering over at Borussia Dortmund. No player wants to hear that, and we understand that, and I understand that. But if he's looking out for him in some ways, well, that's what he has to do. He's the head coach. He's trying to find a way that he can use Reyna. But Reyna's attitude basically took him away from the majority of this world, of the World Cup this past November, December. Now, you worked out your differences behind the scenes with the players on the roster because you asked them for their opinion. They kept him. And we all, okay, that's over with. All the players are thinking, well, this whole thing's over with now. Then he goes after the World Cup to this leadership conference, and he blabs about it in his own way. And in my opinion, that should have disqualified him right off the bat. And we'll get to the other situation between the Reinas and the bar halters, but, you know, if you are going to bring this guy back, who basically broke an unwritten rule. Whatever happens in the house stays in the house. I'm sorry. He's not to be trusted. Yeah. I I mean, the whole thing was a shambles, right? The whole, um, and and, and I think, I mean, I, I had a lot of sympathy for Greg Verhalter in that situation because I, I'm someone who watches a lot of Bundesliga. I've seen Giovanni Reyna's performances become more and more uneven. His injuries have taken a toll. Uh, don't judge him by the, the second half of, of the dortmund Mainz match at the end of the season. Uh, he was very poor. Uh, after. So after the winter break, he had two decent matches. The first two matches back after the winter break, and then was really poor until uh, late May. 
right? So, so basically, I, 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 I had a lot of sympathy for Verhalter because I think Reyna has fitness issues. I think Reyna may have attitude issues. I, I, I can't speak to that uh, for sure, but I, I, I had suspected it. Um, and I've taken the beating on Twitter for saying that, that, that I would seriously consider whether to take him to the World Cup. This is before the World Cup. Um, but he blew it in that moment, right? Um, because those things, I've organized those sorts of conferences. As I, I think I've mentioned previously on this show, Daniel, or maybe it was on World Soccer Talk uh, podcast or somewhere else. I've organized those sorts of conferences where we have the disclaimer at the beginning that this is all, this is a private conversation. Everything is confidential. Uh, and uh, this is a, a, an intimate gathering where we can be open and, 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 and uh, free in, in what we say. However, you are hopelessly naive if you believe that's the truth. If you don't believe someone in that room is going to go out and tell someone else who tells someone else, or someone isn't recording it, or there's someone who, who doesn't have a reporter friend who might want to scoop. These are high-level business conferences, sport business conferences, leadership conferences. I, I, as I said, I've organized uh, multiple uh, conferences like this in the past, and you're hopelessly naive if you, if you actually believe that it's a private, intimate conversation and nothing's going to get out. So that's a very bad sign that, that Berhalter doesn't know um, occasion, time, place. Maybe this is not the leadership lesson you, you, you give in that particular uh, forum. Maybe that is not the thing you say in that particular forum. Um, additionally, I think we're in a position where Berhalter has been – from my reading of things, and again, I haven't covered the national team as closely with him as the manager. I mean, in fact, as I said, I went to sleep. I had a early morning, uh, uh, early morning meeting. I, uh, I did not watch the U.S.-Mexico game live. Um, but I used to cover the national team regularly, and you would get uh, – there has always been a veil, right? U.S. soccer has been very, I think, bad in how they handle media and how they handle openness and transparency. Uh, which is a bad, bad uh, thing to do if you're a nonprofit organization. But they're, they're as guarded as a nonprofit can be. And we have to wait. As Robert said, he did, uh, Robert's uh, uh, very accurate in how he report, reported how we get the records, right? There's a book of reports. Their fiscal year, U.S. Soccer's, ends March 31st. We will get a book of reports for this. This is what, what is it, June of 2023? Yeah, it'll be um, – It'll probably be in the book of reports we get in March of 2025 is when we'll figure out the salaries. So there is a, there is a lag. Um, but they are, they're very bad at transparency, but I don't believe we've had a manager for all of the kind of testiness we had with, 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 with Arena in particular, but also with Bradley and Klinsman at times. Um, I don't think we've ever had a manager that's been this, um, I, 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 I want to say he's just not even media trained, right? They, they, he hasn't gone through the basic media training courses that you give in professional organizations. Um, unlike Arena, unlike Bradley, unlike Klinsman, unlike whoever else, the other candidates for this job potentially. So, uh, yeah, that's something – look, uh, he's been rehired. Uh, Daniel, I, I, I get your point, but he's been rehired, and I think – uh, J.T. Baston and Matt Crocker 
and uh, the media team led by Neil Beefy at U.S. Soccer really got to have to sit down and, 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 and uh, deal with this and, and get him to a point where he is more media savvy and doesn't say some of the things he says. And by the way, this is not a, just a personal observation. This is an observation based on talking to people who do still cover the national team regularly, who do still interact with the national team and interact with Greg Berhalter. He's not... Uh, he, he's not very media savvy. He's not very um, uh, he's not very astute in what he says at times, and he doesn't sometimes know time, place, circumstance to say certain things. So that's a uh, that's a problem, and that's something that the organization has to get a hold of now that they're going to be uh, led by him for three more three more years. That's a shame. The whole thing, and the one thing is this, Robert. That um, you know, look, I. When you have members of the media, depending on who they are, I mean, you can go to ESPN and watch ESPN FC or even watch Football Americas. I mean, you know, Hercules Gomez, Sebastian Salazar, they teed off on this. We all know Craig Burley teed off on this whole situation. We all know how upset he was with the whole situation that was going on. And then you go to Fox Sports. Um, I mean, look, I, I think Alexi Lawless does whatever he needs to do, and I respect the man. I, 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 I respect how he covers and what he does, but we all know how Fox Sports is when it comes to U.S. soccer. They don't look at all the negatives. They only try to find the positives, or they, they go in favor of U.S. soccer. But when you've got Paul Tenorio, who broke the story, went on the post-match show Thursday night on the desk with Kate Abdo and Clint Dempsey, and I give Clint Dempsey a lot of credit. I mean, he was asking the right questions and giving out his own thoughts about the situation. And there's Paul Tenorio basically defending in his own way, U.S. soccer and Greg Berhalter and how he was the, the only possible choice. I mean, give me a break. You, you're, you're, you cannot continue to defend U.S. soccer just so you can keep your credentials for covering the national team. This is ridiculous. Yeah, I just want to start by just following up on a point that Cardiff made. Um, when I was 22 years old, I was hired for my first job in a nonprofit, and um, I was media trained. I was so far down the leadership pole that the CEO's dog would have taken over before I would have even had a chance to, and they, I was still media trained. So if they haven't sat down and put Greg Berhalter through a day's worth of talking to the press, then – Oh, boy, they, they really need to rethink their careers. Um, you know, I think there's a couple of issues to talk about here. Number one is, you know, sports is falling into or has fallen into where a lot of other um, aspects of our life have fallen into, which is, you know, this, this, this emphasis or this desire to go to the extreme where it's like everything is – something is horrible or something is amazing, and there's no gray area in between. You know, this conversation we're having here, there's a lot of negative we're talking about, but we're also talking about, you know, or some of the positive things, especially that Greg Berhalter's done. And, you know, um, generally speaking, as a manager, I think he's 
okay, he was not who I would have picked, whatever. But there's a real benefit from media today in a lot of places to really drive home a, a position or a point to get ratings. And I think that's unfortunate. I'm not accusing the people that you highlighted of doing that, but there are people out there that are going to do that. I do think, and this is something that I know you've experienced, Carter's experienced, and, and others have experienced, this idea that um, with the Federation there's this perception or reality that um, if you're not a team player, you're not going to get the same level of access, the same level of um, opportunity that others have. And again, I'm not going to say that certain folks have that. I, I don't want to accuse that without any, you know, saying I'm not going to do that. But there is, it is well known within the U.S. soccer world that if you're a team player, you're going to get more opportunities and you're going to get more interviews, you're going to get better interviews, and so on and so forth. And so, you know, honestly, if if I'm a reporter whose job is to get the scoops from US, the U.S. Soccer Federation, you know, it would make sense for me to be a team player. I mean, honestly, that's the way it is. And I think there's, I think that falls on U.S. soccer for not being more accepting of criticism. Uh, you know, the the more and more I think about this conversation, the more and more it's like, this is not how any organization should run, much less one that claims it's a not-for-profit. This idea of boxing out media that's, you know, makes you uncomfortable and, you know, only bringing in voices that are, are um, you know, supportive and, you know, having a board that isn't going to make those, you know, ask those tough questions and, you know, votes are unanimous and so on and so forth. Like there's a lack of critical thinking and accepting acceptance of critical thought, it seems like, at the Federation. And that extends down to what we're talking about here, media, outreach, and so forth. And it's been that way for a long time. So I, I, I think that it's a it's a specific issue to the Federation, and I think it would have benefited it from having, you know, and I think Greg Berhalter, if this were a tougher Federation, would have been sitting down for interviews with, with other entities. Like, I would have, if I were a Federation, soccer Federation, I was confident with my hiring, and I had trained this guy, I would have sent him out already. I would have had him do multiple interviews with different, you know, print journalists, you know, online journalists. He would have been on five podcasts. He would have been, you know, I would have been have him out there everywhere. And um, especially now that the CONCACAF Nations League is over and, and you're were, were going into the Gold Cup era, and, and he's not managing the Gold Cup side, I would have had him do interviews all over the place. He would have been at every potential opportunity that he could. He stops for the Women's World Cup and then picks it back up in August. And I would have had him out there and made him the face of this, this side. Um, but they're not doing that. They don't like necessarily to put the tough interviews out there. And so I think there's a larger issue here, which is, and this plays into it, which is this lack of criticism, this lack of, of you know, confrontation with decisions and this comfort level that they like to have with their choices, their decisions, and living or creating this echo chamber where everything is awesome, everything is cool, and, you know, they don't have to be criticized and they can just, you know, dismiss the people who are criticizing it's just I, I'm just sorry, Robert. It just it just feels like it's just a lost cause sometimes with this federation that they can't handle the tough questions. Well, then get somebody else that can absolutely teach Burhalter and make sure that when tough questions are being asked, that they should be answering them and not attacking those. Because the truth is, we care. Carter cares, you care, I care. We care about this national team. We care about how this national team is supposed to be playing, whether it be the worst team in the world, your 
biggest rivals in Mexico to the the nation that that created the game to the World Cup champion that you hope to defeat one day. And Kardec, let me also go here on this. And this is very disturbing, and this is also very disappointing. And we are going to, and I am going to move on to now the situation. Look, thirty years ago, I understand what happened between Greg Berhalter and his wife, of course, Rosalind, when they were attending University of North Carolina. The argument that they had that led to him kicking her outside of that bar, and I give him, I give Greg Berhalter. A lot of credit for standing up, taking the criticism that you know he probably took then to go out, seek help, got it, learned from it, and went back to her and apologized and wanted her back, and she accepted it, and they've had a wonderful marriage. They've had their two to three children, I believe, and... When you have President Cindy Parlo Cohn talking about, well, these were allegations. Allegations? It wasn't an allegation. It happened. Allegations are about when someone is making them up and does not have real evidence. No, there's real evidence that it happened. Now, I'm not one of those that's going to say get rid of Greg because of what happened between him and his wife then when they were dating in college, because that's 30 years ago. He learned from that. You know, I'm not saying he should be kicked out because of what happened back then, Kardec. But, I mean, th- you know, those were not allegations. It, it, it happened. It, 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 I don't understand. It, yeah, yeah. And, and let, let's just, just, just say this. I mean, uh, I, I agree with you. Greg Berhalter uh, did his time. He got his therapy. He uh, went back. There's been no uh, documented incident of this in the last 30 years. Credit to him. Credit to Rosalind, rebuilding their relationship, having a wonderful marriage. Sidney Paulo Cohn is in a different position because U.S. soccer has been accused of covering up some serious allegations in the women's game, some serious things that happened, name Rory Games, uh, name Paul Riley. Uh, the, the, these things uh, strike, strike a chord much more recently than the Rosalind Verhalter, Greg Verhalter incident happened at UNC. Okay, we're talking about things that happened in 2015, 2016, uh, very, very recently. Uh, NWSL is somehow still operating despite all of these, uh, these issues. Uh, we'll see what happens after this World Cup, and obviously USL is launching their own D1 league to compete. Uh, that, watch that space. So Sidney Paulo Cohn, as the president of the U.S. Soccer Federation, needs to be a little less tone deaf about these sorts of things and a little less blasé about it. Because she's sitting on a powder keg, and she knows it. We just had this, the Yates report um, with Sally Yates, uh, w- which was commissioned by U.S. Soccer, independent uh, commission, uh, headed by Sally Yates, the former deputy attorney general in the Obama administration. And we had really some very damning evidence come out of that. So I, I, it, it's absurd. It's toned up. Real, uh, real quickly, to, to, to follow up on something Robert said, this is also speaking of how – Poorly, this was uh, this was handled, and the the reporter side of it, and U.S. Soccer playing gatekeeper as always. There's just a small cadre of reporters they trust. They gave this story. I believe they gave this story to Paul Tenorio. It was leaked. 
at a strategic time, and then they had a press conference on a Friday afternoon, which is one of the first things you learn when you're in communications and media is you don't do press releases and press conferences on Friday afternoon. So, therefore, that takes um, the heat off of them to do what Robert suggested a normal organization would do, which is what I have always done when I've been in communications roles. You then get the new hire, or in this case the rehire, or however you want to characterize it, out on the circuit. He does the morning shows. He does sit-downs with print journalists. He does maybe a roundtable with, uh, with, 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 with select reporters. You have some on-camera things. You have um, other uh, uh, things ready to go out, B-roll ready to go out to the media. None of this was done. I mean, it, it, it's flabbergasting. And a Friday afternoon. I mean, how amateurish can you be? It really is. And, and Robert, you know, when I talk about the role of president of U.S. soccer, like I said earlier, the title means nothing. I mean, I give Cindy Parlo Cohn credit for doing the equal pay situation for both the women's team and the men's team. I give her credit for that. But outside of that, what has she really done? What has this person actually done to be president of U.S. soccer except push a narrative forward to have both, both national teams to get the same amount of pay? Anything else that she's done that, I, that you can think of? Because I can't think of anything else. Because the truth is, I, I, just, I just don't know what she's doing. And to me... She's lost a ton of credibility to not just for me, maybe, and for Cardick and for you, for anyone and everyone that cares about this game. Because the truth is, outside of the one uh, that that one moment, she's done nothing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that and, and that's the low um, the low hanging fruit, right? The, the equal pay um, thing. That's something that should have been done. A long time ago. Um, you know, it's it's interesting. We think about who has roles and, and what they should do and so on and so forth. And, like, what's the role of the president? Like, it, the president isn't a – like, they're not the staff person. They're not the person who's doing the work every day. You know, they're not the ones that are filling up the tax forms. They're not doing the audits. They're not, you know, sitting there paying their pay, the employees. They're They're the visionaries, right? They're the people that are supposed to sit out there or go out there and be – representatives and talk about it and talk about the vision, talk about what they want to do. And, you know, all of this stuff that we're talking about, we're saying like, okay, what's the, like, what's going on here? What's going on with the, you know, the head coach of the national, the men's national team, I should say, you know, we're about to have the announcement for the women's national team roster for the world cup. Like what's the, what's the goal for the women's national team uh, in the world cup to win? Like what we're not hearing from her and the elected leadership is, like that positive vision, those goals, those things like that, and have her go out there and, and be kind of a face, a voice of this federation. I think actually what the disservice is is that she's not being put out there and saying, like, okay, she should be one of these people that is doing all these interviews and talking about that. Um, I would love to know her thoughts. I'd love to have a, a hear a sit-down interview for her with 30 minutes about the U.S. men's national team and what she thinks the goal should be in the hiring process and so forth. I think, you know, so I think a lot of this is this muddled, like, who does what and what the, you know, who has responsibility for these things. And we have people with titles and, you know, they're supposed to be doing these things, but it's obvious they're not. And, you know, it, we've talked about this at the beginning. It's like who actually hired Greg Berhalter and, and 
what who knew when he was going to be hired and it seems like a very well publicly it, it's questionable um and so you have this muddled leadership of this nonprofit organization where in any other nonprofit your president is like the vision the voice the face and they're one of those people who's out there talking about what the organization stands for and now we just have these mess of people that are just doing their own thing talking their own thing and there's just no like unifying principle there. And I, I know that sounds like business talky, but again, you have a women's national team that's playing in a World Cup next month. You've got a men's World Cup you're hosting in three years. You have all of this progress that U.S. soccer has made in the soccer community, and yet we still can't get our act together and figure out how we're going to run this federation in a way that's not, you know, I was going to bring up the word clowns, but clowns are very professional and do a really good job at what they do, and I don't want to disrespect them. Like, it's really unprofessional how this organization is run, and it's from the top on down. And so really the organization needs to, like, again, have a vision, have a goal, have goals, and they just can't seem to get out of their own way. No, they don't, and and that's the shame of it. And this is what makes me really, really upset and angry, guys. This is what really makes me so mad is that they continue to never get out of their own way. They never, ever get out of their own way. They find a new way to bumble and stumble and fumble their decisions, whether they, they want to or not. And everyone is just disgusted by it. I know you're disgusted by it, guys. I'm disgusted by it. It's just been so terrible how badly mismanaged our soccer federation has been. And, Kardec, you know, I know FIFA probably doesn't have a say in it, but the truth is, do you think maybe one day FIFA should have a say in it? Do you think maybe Victor Montagliani of CONCACAF should have a say in what goes on over there? Or they're just going to stay away from, uh, you know, Federation business? Oh, they don't care because the U.S. Federation, the U.S. as as a nation is printing money for FIFA, for CONCACAF. So they're not going to interfere. But uh, I agree with Robert's point. Cindy Parlo-Cohen, I, I did an interview with her. I'm one of the few that's done an interview with her. I did an interview with her about, uh, I, I guess it was, uh, I'm trying to remember when it was, but um, early in her tenure, and it was, there was nothing that came out of the interview. I mean, it was almost like, uh, it was for World Soccer Talk. I was almost, uh, 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 you know, not sure whether I should submit the, the, the transcript of the interview. <laughs> it was so, it, it was so nondescript. And so we're coming off um, a period when Sunil Gulati, you talk about that visionary, you talk about that vision. He was almost too free with it, right? He was talking to the media too much. He was in the media more than the head coach was. He was in the media more than anyone else. He would, um, freely kind of contact reporters on his own volition in the middle of the night and, 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 and talk about things. He would have these really kind of very descript off-the-record sessions with reporters. Uh, so I think maybe there was a desire by the organization with Gulati gone to go in the polar opposite direction, but that means you have this like rudderless, rudderless ship where no one knows where it's going, they have a press conference 
that they call on a Friday afternoon that they seem to have done in, in, in haste after they had strategically, in my opinion, leaked the story to the athletic. And the, the press conference is a, um, yeah, maybe we should find a different word other than clown show. Robert's right. We don't want to insult the, the clown profession. It was just a, 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 a car crash, that uh, press conference, with all of this absolute nonsensical hyperbole thrown out there about the search and about how the search was conducted and the metrics they used effectively just rehire the guy they already had in the job. So um, there is something very wrong with how the organization um, presents itself, which also goes to an arrogance and a uh, sense of hubris in how they perceive themselves internally. And that I've heard for many years. U.S. soccer has this view that they, um, they have been responsible for uh, the massive growth of the sport in this country. They are responsible for everything that goes on in the sport in this country and uh, its massive surge in in becoming a a kind of a mainstream thing in the United States. The reality is the FIFA video game has done more for this, uh, for to grow the game in this country than U.S. soccer has. So uh, they're never willing to kind of look themselves in the mirror and and, and understand uh, where they really are in in, in the greater landscape. And, And Daniel, last point on this. Uh, Sunil Gulati was a guy, again, I was hypercritical of him when he was in, in, in the job. And I was, uh, uh, that podcast I referred to that we did many years ago, Daniel, I was doing a victory lap when he stepped down, basically. Um, but in hindsight, you know, he's a guy that understood what the, the meaning of the U.S. Open Cup. He understood what was going on at the lower division level. He tried to facilitate, obviously, I've worked in the lower division. He tried to facilitate solutions for our clubs. We weren't always happy with it at NASL, uh, but he did the same with USL. He was aware of what was going on in the women's game and the women's professional game and, and you know, maybe too aware, as, as we found out from the, from the Yates report. But Cindy Parlo-Cone, on the other hand, I'm not even sure if she knows uh, who half the pro clubs are in this country. Right? I'm not even sure if she knows what's going on in, in USL or NISA uh, or uh, with, with, the, with the women's game outside of NWSL. I, I, I really get the sense that the organization, and, and I just read to you earlier, the board members. I mean, it's all these former players and inexperienced um, people who have worked in the game. The independent director is really kind of inexperienced also. In the past, they've had people like Donna Shalala and Val Ackerman, people with a certain gravitas who have been very experienced, uh, in the case of Shalala, in running uh, University of Wisconsin, University of Miami, and also in the case of Ackerman and, and being the commissioner, she was commissioner of the Big East Conference. Um, now they don't have that level of person even on their board. Arnold Schwarzenegger was on their board at one point. Obviously, he was the governor of California. And I just feel like the thing is, is going in some, uh, in some aimless direction as we're about to host the Copa America. The World Cup is still three years away. We're hosting Copa America next summer. Uh, and these these guys are, I guess, at least in theory, going to be in charge, which has me kind of concerned because I do not think they have the organizational structure they had in 2016 when you still had Galati, you still had Flint, you still had Ramiti. Uh, for all his faults, you still had Jay Verhalter. And then you have uh, you had a board that was very experienced and competent. Very true. Very, very true. You know, Robert, this whole situation – Really, the, the, the dominoes started falling down when 
Jesse Marsh's agent, Ron Waxman, announced on Twitter that Jesse was uh, no longer a candidate or uh, basically informed all of us that he is no longer uh, in the run in the running for the position. And, you know, that, that's the whole thing that that started this whole situation. The agent of Jesse Marsh, who basically called out U.S. soccer in his own way to say, yeah, my guy's not it. Oh, yeah, watch what I do to you now. And then, of course, that's how the whole sequence got started. I didn't uh, piece it together at the time I saw that tweet on Twitter, but it looks like that's that's the whole situation that just started uh, tumbling down. Yeah, and, and you know, it's a smart way by Jesse Marsh's agent to be the first one out there and say, so that way it doesn't look like, you know, Greg Berhalter was picked over Jesse Marsh. I mean, so it's a smart play for his client because, you know, he, he looks like he's in control of the situation. And, you know, you, you bring up a good point because I wonder if this whole rush was part of U.S. soccer going, oh, shoot, there's names out there. If there's a cascade of people going to social media or to the media saying, yeah, no, I'm, I'm not interested in this job, you know, and, and these names that are getting bandied about are like, yeah, no, they've never contacted me or, you know, I'm not interested. You know, it looks like Greg Berhalter is now your 10th or 11th choice for um, manager. You can't get the person that you want. And so there are ways to handle that. But, um, you know, I think you bring up a good point that um, maybe this is um, how this came about so quickly. And then, of course, you know, we talked about this earlier, how that was then, you know, the story then precipitated, which is, you know, Berhalter's side getting out and saying, well, he's, you know, these people, you know, this club is interested, this club is interested, this club America is going to make him an offer, he's going to be the next manager. And, you know, whether that was, as I posited at the time, a um, a contract negotiation ploy or whether that was a, you know, hey, you know, I, I want to come back, but, you know, you have to make it worthwhile or whether it was a, like, actually, this is the guy that we want. He's in real demand here. Um, he chose us over all these a club in Europe and a club in, you know, Mexico. Um, you know, I think it all speaks to this kind of like PR game that these um, these people are playing. And again, as we've talked about, U.S. soccer is just not as good at it. And so um, they kind of fell flat on their face. And again, if you have an organization in the middle of this, as I said from the beginning, you've got plausible deniability. Jesse Marsh's folks can come out and say, yeah, we're not interested in this. Somebody goes to U.S. soccer and says, you know, hey, did you talk to Jesse Marsh? No, we didn't talk to him. We're, you know, it's, it's, you know, or they go to the, you know, they, they bring up the, the search firm and they say, yeah, he was, you know, he might have been interviewed. We, we had a process and he pulled out. You know, there's a, a third party in there that can handle some of these questions or at least give plausible deniability. And, but, you know, U.S. soccer didn't set them up that way. Um, I also want to touch on one point Karnak made about the board. Um, I, I, in the time period that he was talking about, maybe a little bit before, there was a, a board member that I knew not in his board role, uh, in another role. And this is someone most people would not have heard of, but um, he was and is um, an upstanding human being, a really good person, uh, did not come from the soccer world, came from the political world, um, but was a very sharp mind, very diverse interest, and cared about what he did outside of his day job, one of the smartest people I've ever met. And so those are the kind of people that you kind of want on your board and having an oversight on this process because they're the type of people that will sit there and say, hey, I've dealt with the media for 30 years. Like, how are you all doing this? And, you know, let's, let's talk about the media strategy or questions, the probing questions that somebody should ask. Um, and, again, that, that oversight is definitely lacking. And to, to get to your point, Kardec, about 
you know, what's FIFA going to do? What's CONCACAF going to do? I agree with Cardick, nothing. But the one group that could do something if they wanted to, there's two groups that could do something if they wanted to. That's the IRS and that's the U.S. Congress. Because we saw what the U.S. Congress did with baseball, with the steroid era, uh, and with other sports when they've had scandals. Um, and then, of course, as a nonprofit organization, the IRS ultimately has oversight. I don't, I'm not saying they should investigate them, but those are two entities that if you're U.S. soccer, you always have to be wary of because if they do take interest in you, then your headaches get a lot more and the workload gets a lot heavier, even if you've done nothing wrong. I guess my final thought will be this, guys, because it just doesn't look like U.S. soccer is trying to get the right person in here. They just want to get a yes man to run the national team. They just want people to toe the company line within their federation, whether it will be at soccer house or soon they're going to move out of the house to go into a soccer office and an office building. It, to me, it just, it just, we, we, we're seeing stupidity continuing to reign supreme within U.S. soccer. And it's just getting to the point where it's just getting nauseating where does it look like they're losing fans? Are, are we losing fans, guys? Is this happens? I don't think so. But, I mean, when is enough enough? Cardick, you first, and then Robert. Yeah, I, I, I think that we, we kind of hit that, that point of, of no return. And, and uh, you know, to, to the point Robert just made, um, I, I, it is absolutely true. The level of the board has slipped. That period that we were talking about, I mentioned uh, Donna Shalala, who also I should mention was a congresswoman, a Democratic congresswoman from, from South Florida, um, and Val Ackerman, among others, um, and, and, and his contact. It was a good board. It was a board that was tough, but they had, they had and I think this again goes to the president. So Neil Gulati had a certain um, stature, uh, even in, in the political and business world, to where he was attra- able to attract good board members. Now, what you have is a board with a bunch of former players and, and kind of low-level people who have worked their way through the game. Uh, not, not, not mean to insult them, but you don't have the same level of, uh, of, of person and accountability within the organization as a result. So I think we've hit a point of, uh, where, where, we, where I don't think it's going to change. And um, to, to, to the, the, the thing you mentioned, Daniel, Ron Waxman is a guy I dealt with a, a fair amount uh, in the game. Uh, he's a tough negotiator. He's a really smart guy. He's one of the smartest guys, I think, in, in the sport in this country. And uh, uh, he will always do right by his clients. So you're dealing with someone who's really, really high level in Ron Waxman, who represents Jesse Marsh, among others. Uh, Jesse Marsh is one of his, his marquee clients. And Ron knew, you know, he knew he could, he, he could, he could – uh, start this domino effect because he's, he's dealing with a bunch of amateurs at, at U.S. soccer. So they got out in front of it, basically said, Jesse's not, not a candidate. He's not interested. He's not going to be the coach. And this forced these, these amateurs, for lack of a better term, uh, to, to kind of scramble, leak the story, and then uh, hastily put together a press conference where, where uh, we talked about how, what, what a Keystone Cops moment that was. And uh, – uh, haven't been prepared to get Burhall throughout talking to media uh, beyond that 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 uh, 
one hit. So, uh, yeah, I, 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 I think that U.S. soccer is really in a bad place, and I don't know how it changes or how it improves. Robert? So I, I'm going to take a slightly different tact. I'm not going to disagree with the stupidity, but I think it's more of a comfort issue. I think if I feel like U.S. soccer is at the blackjack table. They have uh, a hand of 13, and they're going to sit there and say, "I'm going to sit on. We're going to sit on this 13. I think we can win this hand." You know, they could. You could win with the 13 in, in, in 21 or in blackjack. You certainly could. You probably aren't. And I think what they did with this hiring is they sat there and said, "You know what? Greg Berhalter is a safe pick." He knows the the system. He did he did well at the World Cup. He did pretty well. Um, the players like him. The the key players that we've said are our key players, our core players are happy with him and, and comfortable with him. And you know we did the due diligence, the legal work after the rain incident. Um, and so we're going to play it safe. They could have gone out and interviewed other candidates, gotten different ideas. They could have hired somebody else um, with different experiences, um, more international experience, different international experience the international game and the club game and shaken up this club and, or, or this team and said, you know what, you know, we're going to challenge you, Christian Pulisic. We're going to challenge you, Weston McKinney, um, like you do at the club level uh, or like these players are seeing at the club level where they're being challenged for their starting positions instead of saying like, yeah, you guys, you know, you're not saying it out loud, but, but you're, you're hinting at a comfort level that this, is, this team as it is is generally good enough. This situation is good enough for what we want to achieve. And if the 2026 World Cup were in Argentina or Japan or, you know, South Africa, I'd feel a little bit more comfortable with that. But, man, it is in the United States of America, Canada, and Mexico. You've got a golden opportunity here. And to not sit there and push yourself to try on the men's side and say, like, we're going to go for it. We're going to gamble a little bit more. We're going to aim higher. Instead, just sit back and say, you know what, we're comfortable. We, are, we like who we are. We like the, we like these 11 players. We like this, you know, 11, 12, 14 players, whatever. We're not going to rock the boat because we're at a place where we think we can we can achieve what we want to achieve is so short-sighted and so naive. And I, it may work out. The U.S. may be in a, a World Cup final. They may be hoisting a trophy. It, it, it's possible. There's enough talent there. But, man, they could have done a lot more to have made that a more likely possibility than they did. And that's the the upsetting thing, and that's the depressing thing with this situation. And that is a very depressing situation. (sighs) Okay, gentlemen, we're going to call it a night. But uh, I just want your final thoughts before we say goodnight. Cardick first and then Robert. Yeah, thank you, uh, guys. I I think it's uh, it's an unfortunate reality that we're in this very polarized situation. And as Robert mentioned, we're in a polarized situation society-wide. And uh, sports does, and and particularly national team sports, has the ability uh, to bring us together. But what we've seen and how U.S. soccer has conducted itself, it's created an atmosphere so polarized. I actually, and I, I do come from the political world, as I think our listeners know, I have said, and I said it on Twitter the other day, that this is the most polarizing, toxic situation I've seen. You know, you could throw out all your, all your uh, adjectives about Trump or Bernie Sanders or whatever. This is far more polarizing than what I've experienced in the U.S. soccer world in the last few years. And so you're supposed to have a federation, which is the governing body of uh, the, the game in this country, that is really only accountable, as Robert mentioned, to Congress. And by the way, Senator Blumenthal from Connecticut has had some concerns about U.S. soccer in the past. Maybe 
uh, he'll have concerns or, or someone else in the U.S. Senate will have concerns again in the future. But that's really the only, only answerable body because we've said FIFA is complicit because of the financial side of it. And what they have done, instead of being the governing organization that is supposed to facilitate the growth of the sport in this country and get all parties to work together and to bring uh, the game into some sort of alignment and the people in the game in some sort of alignment with one another, is do all these sort of sneaky things, uh, do things in a very haphazard manner, uh, put out these, these kind of fantastic cover stories, uh, I don't think anyone whose objective believes what was thrown out there in that press conference about the way this search was conducted, about the way this hiring was made, and about the way the Federation is, is looking at its kind of global, by global, I don't mean global worldwide, but global kind of macro responsibilities. All of that was, uh, were kind of hastily thrown together hyper, hyperbolic talking points uh, that were done I think just as hastily as the press conference was arranged and, and, and the leak was strategic leak was, was made uh, in reaction, as, as you said, Daniel, to uh, Ron Waxman uh, saying that Jesse Marsh was no, no longer a candidate for the U.S. job or was not a candidate for the U.S. job. So um, they have the ability to bring us together. They have the ability to pull us all in the same direction. And as uh, we have seen for the last few years with the amount of litigation that they have been subjected to by stakeholders in the game, I want to reiterate that, by stakeholders in the game suing, whether they sue the U.S. Soccer Federation or the following lawsuits about bullying happening under the watch of U.S. soccer, et cetera, the game has been thrown into tremendous disrepute in the last few years in this country. And um, this was just another episode that tells me that they're not ready to bring us back together and bring us in alignment when they are hosting a World Cup in three years. So I think it's a deadly serious situation. Yeah, you know what? I, I'm trying to think about how to end, and I think I'm going to go with a positive note. Um, you know, Greg Berhalter is not the worst candidate out there. Um, I mean, the man, we've talked about this in the last World Cup and, and at other times. He, he definitely has his positives. You know, we, we talked about him, you know, having the the uh, courage or whatever to start Matt Turner and goal. You know, some of the improvements that he's made as a manager, you know, his record is, you know, we talked about the stats. And even if you push past the, you know, best win percentage and all that, you know, the, the man has won and he's achieved what the U.S. national team wants to do, which is make the World Cup. He's also shown that he can learn uh, from the past. And my hope is that um, as a voice and as a leader in this federation, because obviously he has a lot of power based on his position and how this all shook out, that he takes the time and goes and learns and becomes a better coach. And I think he will. But, I mean, really spends the time to think about what this federation needs and, and take on that role that others have not, which is get ready, the U.S. ready to achieve great things in this World Cup. And, you know, I think hopefully the women's team wins the World Cup this year. You know, Greg Berhalter keeps winning CONCACAF tournaments, these other tournaments, and the U.S. national team, he can be the leader that we talk about the Federation lacking and, and really improve himself and, you know, make tough choices, push these players, don't be comfortable, and um, really do some great things at this World Cup. I think based on his past, that's a possibility, and I hope that he really embraces this as a change agent, as someone who shouldn't be comfortable with what's going on and, and really take hold of that because we really need that in this federation right now. And um, um, if we really want on the men's side to uh, to do some good things. So that's my hope for him, and I cautiously can take on that role. 
And my final thought is this, gentlemen. While there's nothing we can do about Greg Berhalter, uh, you know, finding a way to see if he will no longer be on the team, the truth is the decision has been made. He is back as the head coach of the men's national team. And while there will be those that will be uh, still against it, I, I hope that they will not uh, separate their support for this national team because the truth is we've got to support these players. They've got to go out there, do the job, and the only thing I hope for is that with the CONCACAF Nations League coming back, Copa America next summer, another Nations League in 2025, another Gold Cup in 2025, and then the World Cup itself in 2026. We all have to be for our national team. You can hate on the Federation as much as you want, and they deserve every bit of criticism coming at them. does not matter who you change in the Federation the acts remain the same. They'll play the same game. They'll still disappoint us until there's real people, real blood, real change within that federation. It's going to be the same old song no matter what. And until those changes come in, we're all screwed. Carter Krishnire, Robert Hay of World Soccer Talk. Gentlemen, thank you for joining me tonight on this uh, special edition. And I hope to have uh, both of you back on again soon for another thoughtful discussion. Thank you again for joining me. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you. And once again, this is the Four Scenes Fire American Soccer Show. Thanks once again to both Carter Krishnire and Robert Hay uh, joining me from World Soccer Talk as we talked about the... Uh, Situation bringing back Greg Berhalter to be the head coach of the U.S. men's national team by U.S. soccer. Join me this coming Friday night for the MPSL soccer show and then back to a regular Four Seasons Fire American soccer show and then Gold Cup postgame shows involving the U.S. men's national team. As always, please enjoy your football. Thank you very much. Take care. So long and bye bye for now.